You are listening to Jesus Stories, a teaching series from Jubilee Church. This series takes a look at the stories or parables Jesus told and how they relate to our lives and the world around us. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. So today we are in a series called Jesus Stories, talking about um, the stories that Jesus told. Um, and I, we, we call these stories parables often. And these parables, to me, just show how brilliant Jesus is. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that we say about Jesus, but if I asked you to raise your hand, if I asked, do you think Jesus is smart? I mean, how many of us think of him like that? But he's brilliant. He's a genius. He was probably the best teacher this world's ever seen, and he was fully God, and he chose parables as his teaching method of choice, right? He didn't go get a PhD. He didn't go to the most prestigious college and gather the brightest minds of the day and give fancy lectures. He didn't use expensive technology. He told very normal people very normal stories and captured their imaginations with the kingdom of God. He's brilliant. Jesus is a genius. That's why I love these stories. The word parable in its original language means to throw together, right? So Jesus is taking two very different things, throwing them together, and allowing the kingdom of God to spring up in people's imagination. So he takes like dirt and the kingdom of God and puts it together and people are captivated. Parable also means to throw down beside. So it's like he's just walking along in people's everyday routines and just throws this thought down beside them. And it causes them to lean in. Like, tell me more. That's, that's why parables are so brilliant, because they, they do cause us to hunger for more. His disciples, his followers, asked Jesus, why do you teach us in parables? Why don't you just give it to us straight, Jesus? Like, you tell us these stories. And Jesus' reason was that people see, but they don't see. They hear without hearing or understanding. And he, he, he would even say that those who have, even more will be given to them. And those who don't have, even the little they have will be taken away. Parables push on us, right? It's hard to stay in neutral when we encounter a Jesus story, right? Those who are looking for the kingdom, hungering for the kingdom, will be fed, And those who don't know that they're in need and have a hard heart toward God, it's almost like their hearts get harder. You know, it's like Jesus gives this simple little story and they, you know, some people probably scoffed, right? And that's, that's true for us today. He, the, the word of God is preached and it doesn't always sprout up and produce fruit. And it's of no fault the seed. It's the soil, our hearts, our eyes, that see without seeing, our ears that hear without hearing, right? So just know that these Jesus stories will push on you. And it's hard to stay in the same place when you encounter them. That's why Jesus is so brilliant. And that's how the kingdom of God works. It almost demands a response. It demands us to lean in or it causes some people to lean away and, and walk away. Plenty of people encountered Jesus and walked away. So we, we should be aware of that, that these stories are so brilliant, they will, they'll push us in one direction or, or another. Also, the stories of Jesus typically told one main truth. So we should avoid allegorizing the parables, meaning 
looking for the hidden spiritual meaning in every single detail of the story. Like, what does the bag that holds the seed symbolize? And what's that head of grain symbolize? And, you know, it's just, it's a story. And like any good story, the details kind of work to color in and, and, and communicate the main point. So typically, not always, typically his story is told one main thing. And today, the one main thing I think Jesus is telling us is that the kingdom of God is surprisingly joyful. And possessing it is greater than everything else that we could possess. And he communicates that to people in this simple, normal story. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So let's pray and ask God to prepare our, the, heart, the soil of our hearts to, to receive what he's given us today. Holy Spirit, we are leaning in today. We want to hear about the kingdom. We're fascinated by it. Jesus, you are brilliant. Thank you for displaying your brilliance to us today in this story. God, would you prepare our hearts, our ears, our eyes to receive the kingdom of God with gladness today. God, would you, would you really change hearts today? Lord, would you give us garments of praise instead of uh, a faint spirit, Lord? Give us beautiful headdresses to wear instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning. God, would you bring your kingdom here in our midst and just change our lives. We, we, we love you, Jesus. We submit to you, Holy Spirit. Amen. So this Jesus story, it's recorded in Matthew 13 among six other parables. So seven total parables, and they all have a common link, which is the kingdom of God. Jesus is describing one thing, the kingdom of God, in seven different ways. So you can imagine that, like, that smart kid in the back raises his hands like, Jesus, you, you keep talking about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Would you just tell us already? And Jesus, like with a, a glimmer in his eye, looks at this group of people and says, the kingdom of God is like a seed. It's like weeds and wheat growing up together. It's like a fishing net. The kingdom of God is treasure. And they're like, wait, what, what is it? <laughs> a fishing net and a seed? Pretty different things, right? Which is it, Jesus? What's the kingdom like? And he just like, it's almost like he looks at them and is like, yes. Yes, you're getting it. He's brilliant, right? I, um, I, I just love how he goes about this. And I think that we can glean a few things about the kingdom from this Jesus story and the other ones around it. The first thing is that there's plenty of mystery in the kingdom of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a brilliant man, actually a man who Terry Virgo looks to quite a bit, looked to and respects, right? Terry, who shaped our movement, our family of churches, just really looked up to Martin Lloyd-Jones as a preacher. Martin Lloyd-Jones, brilliant guy, he said that the kingdom is a mystery, that it can't just be easily understood and moved on from. So if he thinks that, I mean, I mean we, should, we should just accept that there's some tension, some mystery in the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean that the kingdom can't be known or experienced. It's not forever hidden, but it's mysterious. It's a, the kingdom of God, describing it, is a bit like describing water to somebody who's never had a drink. 
or experienced water. I could tell you the molecular structure of water, try to describe its color and what it does, but if, you, if, if, you've, if you've never experienced it, it's hard to know because water can clean us or destroy us, right? It can refresh us or burn us. It can be hard as a rock or as invisible as a cloud, right? You, 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 people in Missouri are like grumbling every time it rains. We have enough water. My friends in California are like, oh, we need rain. We don't have enough. I mean, it's like water. There's some mystery to it. And unless you've taken a drink or jumped in and had a swim or stood at the base of a waterfall, do you really know what water is? The same is true with the kingdom of God. There's mystery, and it should cause us to want to dive in and experience it, lay hold of it. Secondly, the kingdom of heaven is not merely a place. So we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we might associate it with heaven, which it certainly is, but it's not just a place that we're all going to in the clouds one day. The kingdom of heaven is wherever Jesus is king. It's the rule and reign of King Jesus. And we we hope that that reign happens more here on earth, just like it is in heaven, but it's not just heaven. The kingdom is also here already, but it's yet to come. Right, it's here, but it's not here, here. There, Jesus inaugurated the kingdom when he showed up on earth, demonstrating God's goodness, healing people, preaching the gospel. He, he inaugurated it, but he will fully establish it one day when he returns to the earth and establishes his, his government forever. It's like a, a, a pregnant lady, right? The pregnant ladies in the room will tell you that that baby is here with us, in a sense, We can see the effects of the baby growing in in the belly. We can feel the baby kick. We can interact with the baby. But that lady will tell you that baby's not here, here. They're not content with that baby just staying where it's at. Although it's here, it's not here, here. There's more to come, right? They want to stand up and announce the baby's born finally on a Sunday. The kingdom of God's here, but it's not here, here. It's almost like the earth is pregnant with the kingdom of God. We can experience it, see it, see the effects of it, but we're, we're longing for it to get here in more and greater ways. A final note about the kingdom, the substance of it, like the, real, the essence of it is the saving, healing, freeing, rescuing plan of God. The kingdom was plan A for God. He determined in his wisdom to demonstrate his glory, his goodness on the earth by forming a family out of every people group on the planet. He's a father looking for a family. And when children of God come into the family of God, they do so by being set free, rescued, healed. That's the stuff of the kingdom. When children of God come into the family of God, we're seeing, we're tasting, we're experiencing the kingdom. It's plan A. It's not a backup plan. The kingdom was always what God was about. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I I imagine this field to be an agricultural field. Right? Jesus is talking to blue-collar people everyday people, people who knew fields well. It's a very normal field that I picture 
in my head, and he describes a guy who is working in this field. He's working in somebody else's field, laboring by the sweat of his brow, using his tools to tend to that field, harvest that grain. He's working. This parable is the stuff of everyday life. It's routine. It's normal. It's the assembly line. It's the cubicle. It's harvesting wheat. It's hard work. This is what this parable is describing. Then, in the middle of that normality, the drudgery, the Monday through Friday, something abnormal happens. It's like his shovel hits something in the ground that's not supposed to be there. And there, interrupting his normal day, is a pile of cash, treasure, a lifetime's worth of wages. This man's life is instantly changed, right? Gone are the days of sweating in somebody else's field, and arrived are the days of relaxing on a remote beach, checking your account balance on your phone, just seeing it multiply as somebody else works your business for you. I mean, his daydreams are just growing, and then they're interrupted with one problem. That's not his treasure, because that's not his field. So what does he do? He covers it up again. He hides it, and that savvy field worker finds a solution. Own the field, own the treasure. So in a burst of energetic elation, he heads off. He trades the sweat of working in the field for the sweat of sprinting toward his new destiny. And he goes to his house and gathers all his things, his favorite shirts, his favorite gadgets, all his money, his cars, it just piles it together, everything that he's worked for, everything that he's sweated for in that field, he gets it together and cashes it in, liquidates it, turns it into money that he can go buy, what? A normal field. And he's happy about it. Imagine what his friends were thinking, like something's got into Bob. He's lost it finally, working out in that field. He's just sold everything to buy a field. It's not even a fancy field. It doesn't even have a house on it. He, he's really lost it now. And he's giggling while he's doing it. I mean, he's just giddy. He's like, I, I can't wait to buy that field. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom of God, guys, is surprisingly joyful. And, and having it, possessing it, is better than anything else that we could possess. And you could flip that statement around and say that losing everything and having the kingdom, having one thing, is a wise investment, is worth it. We see that in Jesus' story. A man who's acting a little bit crazy with joy. This story provokes me, it bothers me. It provokes me to want to have that kind of kingdom. I want that treasure. It's like, I don't want that kind of joy, like this guy. But it bothers me because I look at my normal state of Christianity, of following Jesus, and it looks very different. My everyday life of following Jesus tends to look more like field than treasure. Maybe you can relate. Sadly, I still find myself trying to work 
for something that's been given to me freely. Right? We're all looking for treasure. This guy in the story was looking for treasure, but he was looking for it by punching in and out every day, trying to earn a paycheck and slowly build his way to a better life. And that's the nature of the kingdom, right? You don't work and steadily build your way into earning the kingdom. It comes out of left field, and it's a free gift. Something that that guy could have spent his whole life working for, never would have earned enough to have that treasure. That's the kingdom of God. That's what's so surprisingly joyful about it. And that's what bugs me about this story. When, I, when Jesus found me as a, a depressed, people-pleasing, ashamed 16-year-old, things were a lot more simple. I needed rescue, and Jesus' profound grace and presence found me and rescued me. And I was happy about it. It was very, it was very simple, and I would do just about anything he asked me to do because of that. Things were simple then, but today... There's this big, hairy future in front of me. There's a lot more bills to pay. There's three little boys looking at me like I should know what I'm doing as their dad. And there just seems to be so much work to be done. It doesn't feel as simple as I've been rescued and I'm happy about it. And I think Jesus is telling us this to say, hey, you don't, you don't move on from that. You don't graduate from joy and simple faith. That's why this story is provoking me because it's reminding me of what things used to be like and what today they often aren't. There's three things that I especially notice in this story that I I just want to try to pull out for us. One is our joy is linked to our treasure. There's a direct link between our joy and our treasure. Our sacrifice is motivated by joy. And most importantly, no one in here will ever surpass Jesus in joy or sacrifice. Okay? This isn't a what would Jesus do type story. Come on, just try harder. Get rid of more stuff and be happier. That's not what's going on. None of us could surpass him in that. So first, the, the, the story goes treasure, joy, sacrifice. Right? That's the order of things. And I think most of us, whether you're following Jesus or not, have that flipped around. We think it's sacrifice to get some joy and then ultimately treasure what we want. We think we have to work for the treasure. That's what this guy was doing in the field. He was trying to earn his way. And Jesus is saying, no, it's treasure. You find something, it makes you ecstatic. And then the sacrifice flows from that. So there's a link between our treasure and our joy. The man in Jesus' story didn't have to be talked into being joyful, right? Joy is not logical. You don't pros and cons your way into joy. If you go home and list all the good things in your life and the bad things in your life, I guarantee you won't leave that list feeling more joyful. You might feel a little bit more depressed or happy for an hour. But that's not where joy comes from. Joy comes from joy is surprising. It catches you off guard because it's found in finding treasure. And I can see a direct link between my joy or lack thereof and how I'm treasuring Jesus, right? Because he's ultimately the treasure that brings us that kind of surprising joy. 
Jesus said that where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. It's effortless. Your heart doesn't have, you don't have to talk your heart into going there. Whatever you think is valuable, that's where your heart will be. You'll find joy and happiness in those things. And here's the thing about our hearts and treasure. Our hearts have a huge capacity for treasure. You can fit a lot of stuff in there, right? There's plenty of room for boats and kids and careers and cash. Oh, you can just fill it up. Except if one of those treasures is the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't play well with other treasures. It starts to feel pretty crowded in there when Jesus comes on the scene, right? There's not so much elbow room. He starts pushing on these other treasures, these things that we find of greater worth. That, that's what I think's going on with in, in me most days lately, is this issue of reliance. Am I relying on Jesus? Because I seem to be saying a lot of things like this lately. You know, if marriage was just a little bit better, I'd be better. If there was a little bit more money, I'd be better. Right? If this would change, then I'd be more okay. I, I find myself saying these things. And what I'm really saying is, Jesus, if I had something other than you, I'd be better. I'm relying on these things. And that's why it gets crowded in our hearts when Jesus shows up. He, the, the nature of the kingdom of God, the nature of kingdoms is that they're pretty exclusive and demanding. You can't have two kings. If there's two kings in your life, one is not a king. Kings are sovereign. Kings demand allegiance. The kingdom of God is not a club to join among other clubs. The kingdom of God is not a democracy that we can have dual citizenship here and there. It's a kingdom. And there's something singular about it. What are you relying on, right? What's the thing that you said, if I only had that? And it could be a holy that, right? It could look really righteous. But if you're relying on anything other than Jesus, your joy will just start to be drained, right? You won't find that kind of surprising joy. It could be like, like forgiveness, even in a relationship that you keep getting hung up on, I can't forgive this person. And what you can tend to do is say, if this relationship was just right, I'd be all right. When really you come to Jesus, and you say, just like we did in the beginning, empty-handed saying, Jesus, if I have nothing else, but I have you, I have enough. Even if this relationship is never repaired like I, I want it to. And then you find this joy and you're almost able to forgive. It's this crazy thing. Our hearts are set free when they, we treasure Jesus ultimately. So there's a link between joy and treasure. And our sacrifice is energized by joy. Right? It sacrifices start, stop feeling like sacrifices when there's joy in it. Any sacrifice, whether it's serving the kids with our time, giving money, loving a difficult person, any sacrifice when there's joy in it doesn't feel so much like a sacrifice, right? This is really a parable that describes worship because worship is joy and sacrifice and treasure. Worship is what you find worthy, what is of worth, you delight in, and you make sacrifices for. That's the essence of worship. You can figure out what you're worshiping by just tracing back to what's making you happy and what you're making sacrifices for in your life. We call those things idols, 
Things that we're worshiping, relying on other than Jesus. Where our hearts are, where our, what we treasure, there, our hearts follow right behind. Your money and your time and your emotions flow effortlessly toward the things that you value most. Effortlessly. And Jesus is showing up saying, hey, the kingdom of God, this is what this is like. It's surprisingly joyful. And it doesn't feel like so much like a sacrifice when you, you treasure Jesus above everything else. So what, what's the thing that's caught, bringing you most joy lately, right? Where are you really happy throughout the day? What, kind of, what people are you around that bring your emotions up? Maybe it's a, a bowl of cookie dough and watching The Walking Dead at the end of the day. That's just like, that's the sum of your joy. I've had those days. I get it. But I hope that this parable pushes on you a bit to hunger for something more, right? Paul, one of the first early followers of Jesus, he wrote to a church, in the, the Philippian church, in this letter we have in the Bible called the uh, Letter to the Philippians. And he listed all these things he had accomplished in his life. And it was impressive to that group of people. It doesn't impress us so much anymore because it was a different time. But to the people that were reading, it was like, wow, this guy is legit. Those are some serious trophies he has in the trophy case. And he, he just sets them up for them, and then he, he, he pushes it over. He's like, he writes to them in Philippians 3, he says, Whatever gain I had, whatever you see in this trophy case, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, garbage, trash, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you hear treasure, joy, sacrifice in Paul's life? The treasure, he's saying, I want to know Christ. That's it. By any means possible, I want that. That's the one thing I want in my life. Not these accomplishments that I've gained. Those are all trash. They're a loss. They're not just neutral. They're not just taking up space. They're actually a negative. They're a drain, he's saying. That's what surprising joy in a surpassing worth will do to your heart, right? It makes you count things that you once thought were valuable as garbage. The kingdom of God is surprisingly joyful. And having it, guys, possessing it, it's better than anything you could possess on this earth. And losing everything on this earth, it's worth having Christ Treasure, joy, sacrifice. Not sacrifice, joy, treasure. And like I said at the beginning, a good parable is going to push on you, right? It's going to bother you a little bit. It'll cause your soft heart to soften even more and say, Jesus, I got to know this kind of kingdom. Or it could cause your arrogant, hard heart to say, this, this, this can't be it. Can't be this simple. There's got to be something better than this, and you move on with your hard heart. And remember, though, that 
that Jesus, he has given the greatest sacrifice and had the most joy in it. None of us here are going to outjoy Jesus, right? We're not going to be more uh, of the life of the party than Jesus is. That guy's happy about it. And he's sacrificing way more than we ever will have to. We, you, will not out, you will not surpass Jesus in sacrifice or joy. This is not a what would Jesus do parable. Let's go, guys. Let's sell more stuff. We've got to sacrifice more and put a smile on that face. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's the guy in the parable, really. I mean, he's the one that found the kingdom first and joyfully laid down everything so that he could have it and then share it with us, right? He's the forerunner. He's gone before us in this. So any of our sacrifices will seem so small compared to what he's done. We sacrifice because we delight in Jesus, not to be like Jesus. You can't be like Jesus, right? That's the good news for us today is that you don't have to get out there and sell your stuff more, right? You delight in Jesus and you'll see that stuff starting to get sold off and you'll count it as garbage and rubbish. You watch when you delight in him above all things. I love what Hebrews 12 says. It says that, therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, these are men and women who have gone before us, followed Jesus. We're surrounded by these people. Some of these people lost their heads because of the gospel. And even they are saying, it's worth it. They're happy about it. They're delighting in the kingdom. Since we're surrounded by those people, they've gone before us, they're rooting us on, let us also lay aside every weight. Let us do it. It's our turn to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the first guy to get into that field, the guy that that went before us into this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Talk about two different things, joy and torture. And he's saying, look to Jesus. Get your eyes off yourself and your circumstances. Look to Jesus who did it and for the joy in his heart endured the cross. No one here will out-sacrifice Jesus, nor will we out-joy him. And that should make our hearts glad and free us into grace, right? Our motivation for laying aside anything that would hinder us is Jesus, period. He's the treasure. He's the one that we want, that we delight in. So this reign and rule of King Jesus, this kingdom, the result of it in our hearts will be this surprising joy, sacrificial joy. We're not motivated. Our entrance into the kingdom isn't our sacrifice, okay? You can't mow your field make it look pretty, and then find the pretty treasure, right? You don't get it ready. It, it comes out of left field, surprises you with something you didn't earn or work for. So a couple of questions to just leave us with. I, I just want to ask, where, where is the kingdom at hand in your life? That's a phrase Jesus would use with people. He'd say, repent for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right in front of you. It's right under your nose, he's saying. Turn around. Change your mind about who you think God is and take hold of the kingdom. Repent. The kingdom is at hand. So where's the kingdom at hand in your life? Where are the fields the most overgrown for you right now? Maybe marriage is tired 
and old and boring. Maybe that's your overgrown field. Maybe you're just counting down the days to retirement. Maybe you wish you had a retirement to look forward to and you just want a job. Maybe you haven't moved on from my comment about a pregnant lady because you want to be pregnant. And that feels like an overgrown, tired dream. I'm telling you, you are ripe for the kingdom of God to spring up today. It's found in the everyday, the mundane, the routine. It's not found in the pretty, put-together fields. If your life, if you feel like you're just hanging on by a thread, I'm telling you, you're close to the kingdom. Where is it at hand? And if you have everything together, I, I, I'd say you're, you're, you're pretty far from the kingdom. If you're trying to work your way into it, if your hair looks great and your bank account looks great and your car looks great and your wife looks great, I mean, you're, you're trying to make your, your, your own way. Jesus, I mean, what, what, you're not, he's like, well, I don't know, I can't, what do I need to do for you? You're doing it on your own. You're trying to make it. But, but those of us who are, feel like we have an overgrown field, where's the kingdom at hand? Take note of that. You know, it could be with this new location we're launching into in the, in the, the county, that could be that. Maybe you're staying here and it feels like an overgrown field. <laughs> Like all my friends are going to the county and I'm here in the same old city location. And I'd say you are ripe for the kingdom to spring up, right? When you change your mind about it, like, God, what are you doing? What new thing are you doing among us? Or you're going to the county and you, you feel sick about it because you're leaving all your friends. And you, you, you've tried your, you're so hard to get away from the county. And now God's sending you back. Maybe that's the overgrown field. I'd say Repent. Change your mind about what God could do. The kingdom's at hand. A second question is just to take note of, is your heart grown harder or softer in response to the story? What's your heart doing? A hard heart is dangerous territory, guys. And you don't have to leave here with a hard heart. Yes, this parable could harden your heart, but I'm begging you, turn to Jesus. Let him heal you. Let him change your mind. Let him soften your heart. What's the position of your heart like? Are you leaning in, like, tell me more, Jesus? Or are you leaning back, like, I I got enough. I'd like to hold on to my stuff. It's pretty cool what I got going here. How's your heart responding? 